1: Welcome to another episode of the Wickedly Smart Women podcast, where we celebrate wickedly smart women and provide our listeners with a wealth of wisdom, along with immediately actionable steps to be smarter, spunkier, and more successful in their impact and their leadership. This is your host, Angel B. Hartwell, and today we welcome our special guest, Caitlin Bailey. Caitlin is a stand-up comic, sex worker rights advocate, and writer. She is the founder and executive director of Old Prose and host of the Oldest Profession podcast, and she's currently developing her second one-woman show, Whore's Eye View. She is hilarious, brilliant, an irreverent expert on sex worker history, and a leader in the growing movement to decriminalize Sex work. I am so excited to meet you here on Wickedly Smart Women. We've had the pleasure of meeting in person in a red tent at a podcast event. And so
2: (laughs) here we are again. Caitlin, welcome to the show. It's such an honor and thrill to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So I want to start,
1: Caitlin, with let's talk about your lineage. It feels like I want to talk about your lineage. Are you from a lineage of sex workers or were you initiated into the sex worker lineage in some other way and and why don't you share that story if it was some other way
2: Sure yeah so I I felt called to sex work initially. It felt like it was something innate that was coming from me. And I have been obsessed with sex workers in history for as long as I can remember. And so a big part of what we do at Old Prose is reclaiming our legacy and lineage and the proud history of sex workers. But it was really only after coming out and being a sex worker advocate in the world for several years that I discovered that I had sex workers in my own family because that history is so stigmatized and shameful. And so, you know, a couple of I had the privilege and honor of, you know, a couple of folks in my life as they were as they were passing were able to tell me a little bit more about that. So I absolutely have sex workers in my family. I would go so far as to say that everyone has sex workers in their family. And I honor the lineage of sex worker rights advocates that I'm a part of.
1: Oh, my God, that's beautiful. So I get the tingle. It sounds like you you know, found out as they were passing. And so, you know, that it was probably kept secret. So what I would love to have us talk about now mm-hmm. is about this this whole keeping secrets, whether it's the secret of I was a sex worker for whatever reason or any other secrets that we keep. And what you know from your perspective, keeping secrets actually creates and precipitates in the world.
2: You know, there's that old piece of wisdom, you're only as sick as your secrets. And I think that in a human life, we have, we have such a tendency towards shame that has really been exploited by all kinds of powerful institutions, whether you're talking about governments or religions, or there's so much wrapped up in our, our efforts to coercively control one another, whether that's in the context of an intimate relationship or in an abusive society. And I find that when you speak your truth aloud whatever that is, that allows you to find community. And the truth is, is no matter what you've done or think that you've done, you are not alone. Maria Bamford, who is one of my favorite stand-up comedians, has this great line that effectively sums that up, where she says, you know, it doesn't matter what you've done. There's probably someone out there that did something 10 times worse, and they're on a book tour about it. So you may as well tell your story and own your truth and, you know... Tell the truth and shame the devil.
1: Mm, Well, let's talk about shame. And, you know, it's interesting that you're here now. We had originally going, we were going to be uh, recording this episode a little while ago, and we ended up having to make some shifts in order for us to be here today. And so it's fascinating because I have been deepening again into the shame shit pile. In sure. my, yeah, the shame shit pile in my own life. And I found that it lives. I mean, it really lives and accumulates in my sexual chakra, in my yeah. sacral chakra. And the way I see it is like a dense, dark, toxic, tarry-like mm. substance that is also corrosive. Mm-hmm. And so what I'd love to have you share with us is, have you navigated your own shame Or helped others to shed their shame. And, you know, like in general, obviously what you're doing is to help Mm destigmatize collectively this shame around sex and sexuality and sex work.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And I would love to tell you that, like, yeah, I worked through my shame and I'm fine now. And that's just not that's not how anything works. I am delighted to report that I think I've, you know, thrown out a lifeline or planted seeds that have helped a lot of other people and I don't have much shame attached to the sex work that I did or the kind of storytelling that I do. But I am I am a soldier's daughter and so my modus operandi is to just go into it carrying my shame or not and just keep just keep it moving and so i feel like i've 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 carried my shame it also shows up for me more in the in the throat and chest area it's a sort of a muting energy and it it impacts and it can be a kind of a numbing energy that definitely turns down the volume on my potential pleasure and i think that's That's one of shame's dirty tricks is it sort of the numbing and containment and messes with all of the juicy things that you need to connect to in order to be having a good time. Mm -hmm. Social anxiety, I think, would be an example where where this shows up. But one of our core missions at Old Pros is to help people release any you know social stain that they're carrying around the oldest profession, and I do find that stories from history are an especially powerful way of doing that. You know, you might have thoughts right about your daughter or sister or spouse having done sex work, but your great grandmother or an aunt—that's a cool, that's a cool family story. You recognize that person as being a trailblazer and you know, an active agent in their own lives. No, oh, I love it.
1: Let's talk now about, you know, the history that you have have studied, mm-hmm. right? And if there is one like really either powerfully activating for you story that you think would be good to share or one like really amazing story that our listeners could benefit from hearing, I'd love to have you. Like, just drop us into history right now. Sure. not, Not history- her-story. Let sure. Correct well, that. I, I, I say like, that. That people of all
2: genders have engaged in this work. Right. So, okay, you know, that is that is true. So in my one woman show, I cover 10,000 years of history from a sex worker's perspective. And we're going into the fifth season of The Oldest Profession podcast, where every episode we do a deep dive on a different sex worker from history. So there are dozens and dozens to choose from. But the sex worker that I think speaks most powerfully to me is Veronica Franco. And she was a courtesan that lived in the 16th century in in Venice. Um, She tried marriage at 15, but she didn't love it, mostly because her parents, um, against everyone's advice, had taught her to read. And that's the social context that Veronica is born into, when even the wealthiest and well-bred women of Venice are not allowed to access the library and are socially discouraged from reading because promiscuity of the mind was associated with promiscuity of the body. And there is a real tight container around women's fidelity, right, attached to uh, paternity and patriarchy and all of the things that we've used to justify, you know, limiting where women go and who we speak to and and what we wear and what ideas that we have access to. And so Veronica said to hell with all of that and became first a sex worker at a municipally owned brothel because this was during the period of time where the Catholic Church was actually the largest brothel owner in, in Europe. But she quickly moved from there to become one of the most powerful courtesans in Venice's history. So she becomes a powerful confidant to men in publishing. That's the primary industry uh, during this period of time and became a published author, a powerful editor in her own right, and a mover and shaker as a diplomat at a time in, in a place where married respectable women were literally not allowed to read. Now when Venice gets the plague during her lifetime in her, you know, early 30s, the inquisition comes for her, right? She is pointed out as a she tried for witchcraft twice actually by the inquisition and she defends herself both times and ends up winning her case. But it doesn't matter because the trial cost her everything, all of her Capital, capital, all of her social capital. And so she ends up dying from fever, sort of penniless and alone in one of the poorest red light districts in Venice. And so it's both a cautionary tale and also a figure from history that I really identify with as somebody who sort of took a look at the lay of the land and made choices about what circles they wanted to be a part of, well, trading respectability for access
1: yeah beautiful and and what's really interesting was her parents actually facilitated her being able to become something that wouldn't otherwise have been possible so that's that's a fascinating piece yeah. of that story as well and you know i really love that you are doing these one women shows and really bringing the messaging out mm-hmm. in a variety of ways. I love that you are doing that. We're going to take a very quick break. And when we come back, we're going to let everyone know where they can find out more about you. So right now, though, Wickedly Smart Women, we could use your help. If you're enjoying this show, please consider joining our community, making a donation at wickedlysmartwomen.com and sharing with your lovely lady friends that might benefit from our content. Help a gal out and let your sisters, mothers, daughters, friends, and colleagues know about the show so that we can serve them too. I do want to say a huge thank you to all of our listeners who are downloading, rating, and reviewing. We are welcoming thousands and thousands of downloads from all over the world shout out this week to our listeners in let's venice venice might as well shout out to our listeners in venice let's see peru and latvia and we will be right back with caitlin bailey
0: And we are
1: back with Caitlin Bailey. You can find out more about Caitlin at oldproseonline.org, oldproseonline.org. We will have that for you in the show notes. Caitlin, when they get there, what are they going to find?
2: Sure. So Old Pros is a nonprofit media organization working to change the status of sex workers in society. So we produce the oldest profession podcast. We have a weekly newsletter that's a roundup of sex worker rights related news from around the world. In addition to all of our, you know, upcoming podcasts and live performances, whether that's Whore's Eye View, or we also produce a variety show featuring comics, burlesque performers that we have here in New York that you can live stream from all over the world.
1: Beautiful. Well, listeners, you definitely want to tune in there. So I would like to actually go down the the path of talking back again a, a little bit more about shame. When we think about sex work there's more than one party involved, right? Yeah. So can you speak about any shame things that you have seen or you know speak to on the part of the parties that are purchasing?
2: I think so. You know, my background is in policy work. So I'm much more comfortable talking about good and bad policy around policing prostitution. And I am disheartened by the impulse that we see all over the world, whether it's Norway or Canada or even here in the U.S., trying to criminalize clients of sex workers. And they're doing that because it's grounded in this very old story about how uh, degrading and shameful it is to uh, be a participant in sex work. And they've characterized sort of all clients as, you know, rapists or, or sexual predators. But what we found is that everywhere that these policies are implemented, violence against sex workers specifically and women generally goes up. And so I really encourage our listeners to resist the temptation to paint with a broad brush or make assumptions about the people that purchase sexual services because it's such a broad spectrum. It is as broad as the people who choose to do this work. You know, people are called to this work because they find healing and connection. People choose to do sex work because it is, you know, the only way that they can spend time with their children or make ends meet. And there are people who are coerced into sex work in the way that they are coerced into a wide variety of labor sectors, whether it's agriculture, domestic, mining. And, people that end up purchasing sexual services do so for a wide variety of reasons speaking of my own clients yes there were you know a lot of married men who could have had more open communication with their spouses But there were also quite a few widowers or people who were dealing with spouses who were struggling with chronic illness, where it felt like them getting their sexual needs met with a professional provider was a way of taking a burden off of their spouse so that they could be more present. There are people who explore kinks or fetishes or people who do a lot of deep unraveling or excavating of their own shame work working with professionals. Dominatrixes are especially skilled at this. So I know that from a social perspective, we heap shame on sex workers and clients alike. And there might actually be more shame associated, I think, with purchasing sexual services than with providing sexual services. But you know, that's an individual journey that everyone has to has to go through. And it's it's not something we can legislate.
1: Mm, well, and what's interesting is we have attempted to legislate, you know, mm-hmm. by criminal criminalizing sex work. So yes. I'd love to have you speak about like your big vision, Caitlin. Mm. If you could wave your magic fairy flogger, <laughs> sure, <laughs> across society. What would you like to see happen in this industry?
2: Sex workers around the world have been asking for decriminalization for decades. And what decriminalization means is that we remove criminal penalties for buying, selling or facilitating sexual services. And this means that no one is arrested right, for providing sexual services or engaging in this work. And they are also not evicted and don't lose custody of their children. At Old Pros, we are working towards a future where sex work is neither illegal nor shameful. And I believe that this will free the sex workers that are already contributing members of our communities to be able to offer their wisdom, to be able to fully participate in the communities that they're already in. And I also believe that by decriminalizing and destigmatizing sex work, we can expand access to social services and the basic foundational building blocks that we all need to move our lives forward. We are bending ourselves over backwards, trying to kick sex workers off of social media or from public spaces or denying them access to technology or banking platforms. And by just setting that down, We can expand access to all kinds of services and we can give people access to what they need to move their lives forward and to Uh, self-advocate to avoid exploitation. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, so there's two pieces there that I want to talk about. We're going to talk about avoiding exploitation, but it is fascinating. I actually have a colleague who was on my very first podcast, the Men on Purpose podcast, who actually you know, speaks directly about sex and sexuality and helps men mm-hmm. with their sex and, and sexuality. and ha- it really doesn't have anything to do with sex work. And yet the social media platforms, yep. the banking system, he's had to go through so many hoops. And what he's really attempting to do is to to be a resource, a powerful yep. resource to support healing and evolution for the men that he works with, who have been in many cases trained by Mm -hmm. porn and other things to have a view of sex and sexuality that isn't necessarily serving them in their relationships. So
2: I just think it's important to talk about that. Absolutely. And I think it's really important to draw those connections between health educators, sexual educators, and, you know, pornographers, because this is a very old connection. This goes back to the Comstock laws of the 1870s. You know, we criminalized abortion, prostitution, and alcohol all at the same time during the progressive era in this country. And the Comstock laws conflated, you know, obscenity with information about contraception and information about women's bodies. And there were so many sex educators, healthcare providers that were caught up in his crusade, right, against sexually explicit content. And this is something that makes me nervous when I hear my contemporaries and my feminist friends rail against pornography. I think it's important to remind folks that the same tools that are used to police and censor sex workers and our content are the same tools that are used to police and deny access access to abortion or the full spectrum of contraception or reproductive sexual health care. (laughs) Wow. And we saw that in the immediate aftermath of SESTA-FOSTA, which was um, a federal law that Donald Trump signed in 2018. And it was called the Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking and Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act. And like so many laws that came before it, this was sold to the American people as a way of, you know, helping uh, vulnerable women and children. When what it did was it created a lot of barriers to access. It pushed people further underground, further into the hands of criminals and it wiped a lot of sexual health educators like your friend. It made it more difficult for them to advertise their services or to make their information available to the general public.
1: Mm, wow. Well, and, you know, it's interesting that was called the progressive era.
2: Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: Right. And what's also interesting is that alcohol ended up being re-legalized. Yes. And I actually have a friend who likes to use the words alcohol as a tool of the patriarchy. So it's interesting that that the numbing agent, mm-hmm. you know, back to the shame and and the numbing, yeah. the numbing agent has been re-legalized. And we're also, you know, in the last two years or less, mm-hmm. have now faced the whole abortion absolutely you no know, issue with Roe v. Wade being yep. overturned. So We've only got a a couple of minutes left. So in this last couple of minutes, I do want to talk about the exploitation piece, right? It comes back to the trying to control it. The more that we try to control things, the more we end up having a lot of negative consequences that actually creates the criminal experiences. And in particular, let's talk about human and particularly child yep. trafficking. Sure.
2: Yeah, I mean I think it's really interesting that prostitution has become a symbol of exploitation. But all of our efforts to eradicate or suppress prostitution has not alleviated any suffering. It only compounds it. So, you know, 89 percent of the federal budget last year that was earmarked to help anti-trafficking victims went towards arresting adult consensual sex workers. And what this looks like in this country is very similar to, you know, the Robert Kraft sting made headlines several years ago. Right. The owner of the Patriots got caught up in a massage parlor. This was sold to the American public through press conferences that, you know, the police rescued sex slaves from an international sex trafficking ring when in reality, a 70 year old man paid a 40 year old woman to massage a different part of his body at a completely legally licensed massage parlor. There was no reason to get local law enforcement, let alone the Department of Homeland Security or the FBI involved. And so this is what anti-trafficking efforts look like. And the only people that faced charges at the end of that sting were the 19 women that had ostensibly been rescued from this terrible situation that they found themselves in where sometimes they made extra money. And so I think it's really important to really get clear about the gap between what law enforcement says they're doing and what is actually being done. And if we want to face the reality of people who are doing traumatic, awful things that, you know, hurt their soul or their body in order to get their survival needs met, we will never arrest our way out of that problem. Right now, today, in this country, in the United States, we have 11, 12 and 13 year old kids who are working in slaughterhouses and mines and processing plants across this country. And we are doing nothing to investigate those egregious charges. Sometimes we send ice into these these plants to look for you know, illegal immigrants, but we are not actually doing anything to cut down on exploitation, especially violent exploitation exploitation. Sex trafficking in this country looks a lot more like domestic violence than it does like drug or other kinds of labor trafficking and the way that we can you know get ahead of that is by providing more services and more support for people across the board. It's the fastest way to trap somebody in a life of prostitution is to arrest them for it, because it is that much harder to get an apartment, get a regular job, regain custody of your children once you have that charge. And so in order for us to look past this, you know, deep, deliberate symbolism, right, where we we think that we are helping people by suppressing visible eroticism or uh, whatever it is, I think it's important for us to get very clear About what we're actually against, which is exploitation, especially violent exploitation, which you see in every labor sector. I mean, according to the the Labor Department's own numbers, the overwhelming majority of people who are violently trafficked in this country are trafficked into domestic work. Right. So Marriott Hotels, for example uses third party contractors to clean their rooms, which enables traffickers, right, to exploit people who may be working here without, you know, proper paperwork or might be in a vulnerable position for some reason. And so Marriott Hotels takes advantage of exploited labor while simultaneously covering their hotels in propaganda, asking their guests to, quote, look out For trafficking. And by trafficking, they mean women in stilettos or with acrylic nails. And so this conflation has really hurt real victims of trafficking because we've allowed a symbol and a story to blind us to what is actually happening.
1: Mm. Well, girl, we could talk all day. (laughs) We definitely could. And we are at the end. I am so grateful that you brought your brilliance and your clarity. You're so freaking clear. Thank you. And your advocacy to the show today. I hope that our listeners just really take seriously what you have spoken about. And, you know, whether you're a sex worker, was a sex worker, have family members that were sex workers, have visited sex workers, or just are a wickedly smart woman who wants to support this advocacy, I highly recommend that you connect with Caitlin. Please go ahead and go to that link that we talked about, oldproseonline.org and educate yourself, like get yourself educated as a baseline and start shedding the shame and the shaming that you might be doing to others. And listeners, we do love feedback. So please let us know what you thought of today's episode. Go right now to wickedlysmartwomen.com to join our community, share your takeaways, ask questions, or submit guest suggestions. Thank you so much for tuning in. Keep your ears open. And remember, you are a wonderful woman.
0: Thanks for tuning in, downloading, and listening. at wickedlysmartwomen.com.